Welcome to Season 1, Episode 34 of Digital Dissection, where we take a closer and possibly unnecessary look at our favorite properties. And today, we finally bring that one special fan who won a Twitter competition oh so long ago, his fan request. And we're going to cover the origins of Mobile Suit Gundam, as well as a little about what the series is about and how it's kept going for over 40 years. And before Joe educates Mark on Gundam, because Mark knows literally nothing about Gundam, we're Chelsea, Joe, and Mark, three friends who have been discussing pop culture now on a fairly consistent basis. And now we're going to be bringing some content that we're not even really familiar with to your ears, or at least Mark's not familiar once again. <laughs> but hey, if you're looking for us on social media, if you found this little show by accident, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all you got to do is search for Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast, or at Digital Dissect One. We do also run a blog and write things during the week from time to time. So if you do enjoy reading, we highly recommend you check it out because we do drop some information there that, of course, we don't cover during our weekly shows. So two men will enter, both will hopefully leave, and one of them will have a little more Gundam knowledge than he did before he walked in. So let's get started. You know, Joe, it's been a while since this little Twitter contest thing kicked off where we did a, a digital giveaway for a lucky fan to pick a topic of their choice. Yeah, I would say at least a fortnight times two, maybe. At least a month. Looking month, month and a week somewhere in there. <laughs> it, it, it might have yep. been two months ago at this point. I don't quite remember. But, but hey, Twitter yeah. user at Geofire uh, selected a topic for us. And oddly enough, it was a topic that we hadn't covered yet. Mm -hmm. One that Joe was foaming at the mouth ever since we began creating this, this program. <laughs> and uh, specifically, Geofire's me message was, my nerd blind spot is Gundam. <laughs> Did you cover Gundam? <laughs> yeah, we could definitely cover Gundam. And uh Slight apologies for taking so long to get to it, because if you've ever listened to like a side stitch episode, we tend to like just go off on these tangents. And that's kind of what happened with the show is we went off on it. We, we, we did the, uh, the contest. We had our winner. And then Mark would talk to people and be like, hey, would you come on our podcast? And like, yeah, sure. We can do it like this week. And that kept kind of happening over and over again, uh, because even though we didn't set out to be like a, like a guest format show, we have been incredibly fortunate that incredibly talented people were willing to come on and talk to us about properties that we uh, have been in love with for the longest time and they were involved with. So we are finally getting back to that main mission <laughs> uh, that was uh, the Twitter competition. And also we had our side stitch earlier this week um, on one of the alternate Gundam timelines uh, with Gundam Wing, which also filled with tangents, but a lot of fun. So if you haven't checked that out yet, um, like Gundam Wing compared to the rest of Gundam, it doesn't really go with any of it. It's just kind of there doing its own thing. So mm -hmm. you don't have to listen to it to really know what's going on today. Uh, but today we're going to talk mainline Gundam from the beginning. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, for me, dude, like when we talked about Gundam Wing, it kind of felt like the salad bar at a supper club. It's like it's just kind of there, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know? We're gonna we're gonna throw some vegetables in there and stuff. You're gonna question how old it is and mm -hmm. why it's what it's even doing. But hey, it's part of the meal. It is. And after today, what you could do though is that if you learn about Gundam today, you'll realize or learn that even if you go to watch any of these alternate timeline Gundam series that don't have any bearing on what's known as the Universal Century Gundam shows, um, they all will kind of borrow main ideas and main tropes from the main Gundam series. So, uh, for instance, today we'll talk about one character named Shar Aznable. Uh, we had talked before about a character named Zex Marquis. And Zex is basically that show's version of Shar. He has a very similar backstory, very similar motives. Uh, but other character, other character points and plot execution will go different along the way. But before we go that, that deep into it, um, a disclaimer. Uh, this is a series... Like I said, it's literally started since 1979 and has, I don't know how many anime at this point spawned off of it. I own a good deal of them and I, for some reason, can't keep track of how many of them I have. Um, it has a plethora of manga. It's got lots of novelizations, um, an insane amount of model kits and toys made for it. It is a cultural standout and icon in Japan. So there is no real way for us to cover this completely in our normal runtime. Uh, and that's even if we just stuck to the main series, or just one, the original story of Gundam. We couldn't cover everything well, uh, well enough in our typical hour and a half. So we're going to do our best we can uh, with the time we have and what we can, we can help you out with knowing more about Gundam. Well, and, and on top of that, I mean, this is reminiscent of, you know, Star Trek week where you clearly had the master's degree, you know, in Star Trek. <laughs> mm -hmm. And in this case, I mean, I feel like I have even less knowledge possible mm -hmm. about Gundam than I ever did about Star Trek. Because <laughs> uh, because at least with Star Trek, you know, I've watched some of the movies. I've, I've mm -hmm. you know, piecemeal watched some of the series, the TV series. So in this case, I mean, Gundam is white space for me i have really no idea mm -hmm. uh what's going on with it so it'll be kind of fun for me to learn along with with the folks tuning in i'm assuming yeah. some of them will know about gundam but i have no idea seriously <laughs> yeah. well we will go and start with the Gum gundam's like very very humble origins and kind of basically just go along with what was happening at the production company sunrise at the same time you actually had the series running and a few main plot points. That is kind of the best we're, we're gonna go with it today. So even though we're gonna cover just the main original series, um, some things to remember is a lot of these themes from the original series will continue to repeat in every Gundam series. Um, Gundam ultimately is about the tragedy of war, those who have to suffer through the day-to-day -day combat, as well as the politics that go into actually starting the war in the first place and some of the greater i guess evil that is on both sides of a war throughout so we watched the news ahead. here yeah. this is like. right now 
And that is a good point uh, because it sounds too real. And that's exactly what the creator was going for when he did this, when he made it. So if we jump into a little time capsule and we head all the way back to the year 1977, we have um, a production company, anime company called uh, Sunrise. And that's where we're starting here. And what to know of what's going on, like at least in this genre in Japan, is that you have Space Battleship Yamato. Have you ever heard of this? I mean, I might have made that noise mm -hmm. trying to blow on really hot food that I was <laughs> trying to eat. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't say I am familiar with it, though. Okay. Although, I, I feel like Sunrise as a logo had to have mm -hmm. been said like the old Sega... Sunrise. Yeah. It's got a bit of that. It's I think the way it does now, it's like kind of like just a uh, like a quick ping, and that's all it does. Although this like the the, the Sega way way better. Oh. I like that a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, but you maybe at least familiar with the Yamato at all, like World War Two. I've heard, yes, yes. I, I'm very yeah. familiar with with the Yamato. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So the Yamato in Space Battleship Yamato is actually that same ship from World War II. It was reconstructed in secret and then uh, resurrected to be spaceworthy and is supposed to be the bastion of hope for the planet Earth uh, in a fight mm -hmm. against some aliens. And it's a another like culturally huge, huge thing in Japan, um, especially I mean just given like the fact that they use the Yamato, which was you know, like more or less the crown jewel of of the uh, the emperor's fleet in World War II. Sadly, um, she came at a time where I guess you know it's all perspective uh, when I say sadly, but it came at a time where like flight was a much more important thing for military as opposed to like naval. So mm -hmm. she was she was sunk by the just plethora of of the United States Air Force that was flying around. Uh, the Amatonji gets sinks. But anyway, uh, the anime based off of that ship is massive in Japan. Huge, huge hit. Um, I believe it starts as a TV series, eventually gets into a movie. Um, and at that time, if it was animation on TV, it was called TV manga. And it wasn't until shortly after Yamato became such a huge success that it seemed like animation was more for more than just for children, but also for adults that TV manga became anime for the very first time. Mm, so that's, that's where that's, that phrase even comes from. That's far better than what I would have come up with. I think I would have done like anime TV, like, you know, like <laughs> mm -hmm. try to try to make add another syllable <laughs> on the end of that. <laughs> I mean, you, you're the better marketer than I am. So your worst idea is better than my best idea. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, that was for Yamato was uh, made by Toei Animation, which if you're familiar with any sort of anime, you also know that's the same studio that brought Dragon Ball Z. It's yep. a very, very huge, successful um, animation studio. And yep. they, when they get too busy because they have lots of ideas, lots of things to make, sometimes they'll subcontract out work to smaller animation companies. That is where Sunrise was. And they had a majority of their jobs through subcontracting through companies like Toei. And that's where they made most of their money. But they decided that they wanted to start making their own original content. And they needed to figure out a way to do this. Well, 
they did have some success with giant robots at the time. Uh, they had Mazinger Z already, which was made by uh, Yoshiyuki Tomno, who we'll be oh, yeah. really focusing on today. Um, and that was successful. And then it gets to the point where Clover, to the Clover Toy Company, says they agree with Sunrise, like, hey, here's the deal. We want three original giant robot series so we can make three original toy line series and we can both make some money off of it. And Sunrise is like, hey, that sounds like a great idea because we want to make some original stuff. Uh, let's do this. So in 1977, we get none other than the invincible Superman Zambot 3 made by I mean, Yoshi Tomino. That's that's catchy as hell. I Super mean, that, catchy. Yeah. You can put that on t-shirts. <laughs> I mean, it mm -hmm. might take up most of the real estate on the front of a hat, but you know what? Yeah. It rolls yeah, out it's what it's there for. I mean, you could go down to the bill with that. That's where you put the threes on the bill because you got the invincible Superman Zambot like taking up most of it, and threes just right there. <laughs> Easy to stylize. <laughs> just right there. And then a year later, 1978, we get Invincible Steel Man Diatarn 3, also by Yoshiki Tomino um, from Sunrise. And both of those moderately successful. Um, the toy lines are doing fine. Series are doing pretty great, or by pretty great standard, because at this time, by 1978, the giant robot genre is becoming pretty bland. Just, and even yeah. Tomino knew that. So I was, was going to ask you what great meant in terms of success, right? Because mm -hmm. how do you really gauge it at that point? You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, we, we talked about how in the RPG episode, a lot of these like mm -hmm. nerdy things tended to be, well, I didn't say nerdy, but in this case, you know, anime, uh, some of these pockets of nerddom were isolated in this case mm -hmm. to a specific area of the world and not academia. So yeah. What is, what does great mean? Yeah. So great in Japan, mostly focuses on basically like viewer share ratings for TV. Mm -hmm. So of the projected number of people watching TV during a, during a certain time slot, how much of that percentage is actually on your program, sure. along with how well a toy is selling. Because, I mean, you and I both know, as well as anyone who collects toys or watched anything growing up, those cartoons are basically half-hour commercials for toys. That, hey, that was their let, point. Hold on a second. Let's not, <laughs> let's not offend people, Joe. Action, <laughs> action figures. That they are. Okay. All right. And I have lots of them. You can see them in the background. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> let, let's mm -hmm. let's not be offensive or or edgy no. by calling them toys, Joe. Okay. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> these are act, <laughs> action, action figures. figures. Certainly, certainly not dolls. No. 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 They are not. No. 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 Not dolls. Damn, they are it's a damn figures. art form, Joe. <laughs> they are. They definitely are. And I'm not saying it sarcastically. As an avid collector of action figures and toys. Love them, love them, love them, love them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you can't yep. see this, but I'm looking behind myself as I'm surrounded by bookshelves covered in in action figures. So mm -hmm. I'm not much. Is uh... <laughs> it much like the landscape of Japan with giant robots at the time? Because <laughs> that was the problem: is there were so many giant robot cartoons or anime or TV manga, however you wanted to put it, at the time frame, and they're all basically the same. They were more or less season three of Star Trek. Uh, the original series. It's it's monster of the week. Beat him up. How can this robot fight the other robot and win? Um, that was that was that was basically every robot show at the time. And Tomino looked at it 
And he knew that Sunrise also needed a hit. Like, we need something to really stand out and make Sunrise a company that's more than just subcontracting. So he had the idea. How about instead of doing this isolated story every week, we have an ongoing story that could lead to something that could potentially be something that's feature film worthy. And we make it so it's more realistic and make it so that it's not just children wanting to watch this. And Sunrise was like, but the sponsor wants super robots or wants like the big, the big, like fun, just beat them up things. And Tomino was like, we will apologize to the sponsor later. <laughs> Let's try doing this now. <laughs> you can totally tell this isn't an American property because if it were, they'd be like, hey, let's just put boobs on the robots. Okay. <laughs> you know, that make should them, do it. Yeah. Make mm -hmm. sure the light just hits it just the right way. Yep. But that's mm -hmm. what we need. We need, we need boobs, we boobs on those robots. What if, there. Could, could we make the robots sexier? Yeah. <laughs> could we do that? Would they, we could get the adults to watch if they're sexy. Yeah. Say the kids will stay, <laughs> the adults will show up. I mean, that's, no. that's, the, mm -hmm. that's the recipe for us. Absolutely. So in comes a thought to his head. And that thought is space battle group gun boy. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. That was thankfully the working title uh, for the series because it took some whittling down with that working title. Okay. And Tomno definitely know he wanted gun involved because it was a war based show and yeah. he wanted that never to be confused with anything like this isn't some silly fight for the sake of fighting this is legit war so guns there and then eventually became gun dom because he's like this is about people fighting for their freedom so we're going to take mm -hmm. gun and the end of freedom and make a gun dom and then as it were as it was as it has been told tomino's like Wait a second. That's a good idea, but I have an even better one as he's having this conversation with himself. He'll like, we're going to keep the gun in there because it's definitely, again, it's a war. No one can forget about that. But I also want our main character and our main robot to be so advanced and so good at what it does that could hold back the entire enemy itself by just by itself, like a dam holding back a flood. So mm -hmm. we will make it gun damn and you put it together it looks like it's pronounced gundam so that's how we get the name gundam and he pitches the idea based off of jules verne's two years vacation where it's a story about 26 men and, men and women on a state-of-the-art battleship who are going to face down the face down the real drama of combat and not be superheroes and that's the idea that he pitched to Sunrise as this was going to be something different. And they loved it. Like, that's that's brilliant. It's real. It's going to be gritty. It's going to be something that no one else is doing. And we think you can actually have something here. So when did they start to make the over-the-top, like, intro music? Because that's what I've always wondered about anime, right? <laughs> See, that's too. See, I'm going to do it because, like, like, when it comes to, like, anime intro music, I feel... Like, of all the stuff I've watched, and even, like, I'm talking, like, Sentai or, like, any Japanese genre, is that basically they take the things that they think are important to them in life, and they make sure they're, like, pounded into every theme song or ending song, which is always, like, love, happiness, 
friendship and oh. um like that like, stuff let, like that finds its way into everything like let's fighting love on south park exactly and like <laughs> south park does such a brilliant job at making fun of it yeah <laughs> because it's true it's exactly what it is so yeah so I feel like, and I, I could be getting this completely wrong, but like when it comes to like those opening themes in Japan is to try and hook you on the show is they promise to tell you like all of these things that they like as a culture are going to be present within the show. And that's, that's how they get the big, big things. Um, again, complete speculation on my part. I just happen to notice that those are the things they like as a culture and they're also in almost all the theme songs. It makes sense though. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I, I bring it up, you know, half tongue in cheek and half actually curiosity because oh, yeah. I begun to consume mm -hmm. a little bit more of, you know, Japanese influenced animations or mm -hmm. uh, obviously with, you know, getting to meet Kyle A. Bear, it's like, yep, I'm going back and like looking at stuff that I, I had seen him in, but hadn't really <laughs> did a kid at the time too recently. So, <laughs> So getting yeah. a chance to mm -hmm. see, you know, to explore it a little bit more, it's it's really yeah, it's it's nice to, if I don't have the direct connection to the influence, it's it's at least mm -hmm. good to have something to kind of base that off of, especially if yeah. you're a friend geofire and mm -hmm. you're like, guys, tell me about Gundam. I I just gotta know. I, yeah. I don't know anything. Yeah, uh, yeah, nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. a good foundation. I'm I'm digging it so far. There we go. So far, so as Tomino begins to like really flesh out the idea, what he's telling his his basically his production team, his animators, and his writer staff is, here are the three main things that are at the core of every episode of this: freedom, duty, and survival. And that's what the show is about. Is again just these people really struggling to survive, and the show will have giant robots because that's what the sponsor wants. However. Unlike all of the other giant robots that you typically see, where like they just are kind of inexplicably strong, they're not really explained how they work. Uh, they're borderline magic half the time as to how they work. Is that the emotion of the the person who is piloting the robot can somehow supercharge the robot or just do something based off a whim? That he's like, think of these more as tanks with legs, and that's how they're going to be. We need to flesh out how they operate from head to toe. They need to make sense within their own world because Tomino also freely says that like a 20 meter robot made of ridiculously strong metal just won't work. Like it's not going to be able to walk around on earth. So we need to make it so at least fits within its own universe and it's going to take place mostly in space because that's where they should work the best. Yeah, um, and, and we're going to need something that 20 years from now a popular rock band will use on a remix cd <laughs> what's that i've never heard of a rock band used gundam on a remix cd oh yeah del lincoln park boom yeah there we go I just thought, oh, yeah. they've got uh basically a uh a zaku from the series that they've yes. they've 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 kind of piecemealed together to make it work that way yeah. and, and again like he he did intend to set out. He's like he wanted to make it memorable. He wanted to make it stand out, and he did because when Gundam was created, it actually took what was just like a robot, a giant robot genre, and split it in half. So that after Gundam, you had the real robot genre, which is what Gundam is, and then there was the super robot genre, which is just the, again the the giant, unexplainably powerful robots that people kind of either hang out in or control from a distance. So. We get going here uh, with production of the series, and something else to really hammer this home is to be something real, but also because they're in a time crunch. 
they're like, we don't have time to make up like a brand new alien race to have threatening Earth. So instead, it's going to be people who are just living in space and space colonies who yeah. rebel against the Earth. And this way we get that that theme that really draws people or attracts people to war-based literature. And that is you have brother versus brother, is that you would have people who know each other on both sides of the war and at times will be forced to have to either come and will be forced to have to come to conflict with each other. And we do see to, that. To destroy the stones. <laughs> or, yes. or it's like property brothers, brother versus brother. But, uh, <laughs> in, in Gundam suits. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So let's now actually look at what's going on in Gundam because so far this is all behind the scenes setup work. So mm. when we're introduced to Gundam in the start of the in the start of the series, we see uh, basically our main protagonist right away, whose name is Amuro Ray. We'll we'll touch on him in a bit, uh, and we do have the space colony that he's living in, and you have three of the enemy mobile suits, which we'll also talk about here in a little in a second, are coming to his colony to, because they have heard that there is a secret project going on by the Earth government, and it's their own mobile suit that it's going to be there. So they need to intercept this and figure out what's going on. And as the episode goes on, um, things happen. The Zaku start some combat, uh, these, which is the name of the enemy mobile suit. And Amuro finds himself piloting the experimental mobile suit, which is called the Gundam. Oh. And he is then thrust into battle himself because while he's in it, and he only partially knows what he's doing because it turns out his father is the lead developer on the project and he had stumbled across the plans for the Gundam that morning uh, because his father had left them out. So it's seemingly off of just a morning of studying, he's able to fully pilot this thing and fight off these three enemy mobile suits even though he'd never been in one before. Wow. I mean, who had Incredible. I mean, what, what origin story doesn't start off that way, Joe? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you have just a very, very talented youth uh, working things out. But because the Zakus had started a fight, the ship that was meant to transport the Gundam from that colony back to Earth, its crew was almost completely wiped out by these mobile suits. So we're left with Amuro and the Gundam and more or less volunteers and refugees from that space colony now in charge of this highly experimental brand new warship that the Earth Federation made. And that's where the series starts off, is you have people who did not ask to be a part of the war, but are now thrust and being made to be a part of the war. And when you look at Amuro Ray himself, here is a protagonist who is unlike, again, genre-breaking, groundbreaking at the time, was unlike any like giant robot pilot of the time. Because most protagonists, as um, the uh, uh, Yoshikazu Yoshi Yoshihiko, who is the art director for Gundam, mm -hmm. uh, as he put it, most protagonists of the time had a strong sense of justice and were either sharp or very dumb. And they just kind mm -hmm. of would either barrel headstrong to battle because they're super athletic and they're more or less their their strength would always pull them through to get that sense of justice, or they're incredibly intelligent and they would use that to get through their, their situations. Whereas mm -hmm. Amuro, we find him, he's a, he's pretty gloomy. Like he 
is a recluse almost. He is always late to school. He barely knows how to take care of himself. He's obsessed with Mecca. He's obsessed with technology. And he's a bit of a loner. So he actually has his neighbor. Um, his neighbor, her name is Fraubo. Not sure how that name was made. But she's more or less like taking it upon herself to actually like, take care of Amro because his dad is gone so long. And mom is still back on Earth. So she is basically just make she's put basically put it upon herself to make sure Amara goes to school and actually eats and showers because if left to his own devices, he'll ignore the world around him. And you may ask yourself, like, well, then why do we care about the guy? He doesn't care about anything else, right? I mean, I, I'm yeah. just looking at the parallels right now between this character and every RPG I've ever played and <laughs> every every anime that I am familiar with. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Amra was the first one to do that, believe it or not, because he was someone who had to figure out like his sense of justice and his place, not only in this war, but in the world as the story went on. So he's a character who starts almost unlikable, but Honestly, he's not as unlikable as other characters further on down in like sequel series. I actually really enjoy Amro Ray from start to finish. Um, but he starts off very untypical of a protagonist in Japan at the time. And he builds and develops into someone who understands exactly why he's fighting as the war goes on. And yeah, he, the he reminds me reminds me less of uh an Ezio de Tore and, and more of a <laughs> More of a Connor Kenway. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think that's actually a pretty a pretty cool way to bring in a character. I mean, because mm -hmm. you have to remember too, for like for folks that are going like, Oh yeah, I've heard this kind of character before. Mm -hmm. uh, I doubt our fans all sound like that, but uh or our listeners, I should say. But the reluctant <laughs> the reluctant hero, mm -hmm. I do feel like is is far more eastern in influence than it is you know, in in, uh, in in the American audiences that time, like oh, you mentioned, absolutely. Guys are either wearing loincloths and like riding a giant cat in the battle, mm -hmm. uh, or they're <laughs> holding uh, an M60 in one arm, you know, uh, with uh, with a bandana. So, yo, Joe, uh, baby, I, I, <laughs> I really, I really appreciate it. You know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. Cool. And another person who appreciated that was uh, Toro Fruya, who was the voice actor for Amaroe. And he had also, he did kind of the point where he's kind of being typecasted as like these fiery heroes um, who all were kind of one dimensional. And he was so worried that he would basically voice that character for the rest of his career to the point where he would forget how to do anything else. So when he got wind of this new anime coming up and he saw Amuro Ray and he, he saw like what the character was like, he was like, what? A robot pilot who doesn't want to fight? Yeah. This is bizarre. But this is yeah. a chance for me to do something different. So we hopped on it. Uh, and we again, we get this gloomy Amuro. We have the uh, this experimental ship, by the way, that's carrying the Gundam is called uh, the White Base. It's a Pegasus-class warship. It's the first of its kind. And it carries with itself two other like big robots, one called the Gun Cannon and the Gun Tank. Uh, all three of these things, by the way, were basically redesigned over and over and over again. When you, if you'd ever look up like the designs for the original Gundam, 
uh, I think we see like six different designs, each of them being very, I don't know, I don't want to say extreme, but you can definitely see the nice lead into the character where you've got um, Gundam, the original one is the way I see it. Like if you can think of like the old like wind up robots that were like mm -hmm. pretty, pretty basic, think of that. You get rid of the antenna. It's got more of like a dome shaped head and it's mostly black orange and some silver on it and that was the original idea but hmm. when the toy company clover first saw this they're like no 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 that thing's not going to sell kids aren't going to play with that damn thing it's too dull too dreary spice it up we want some blues reds whites uh the colors that really really get the kids going real america by the way red white and blue baby but so as as things went on they eventually started incorporating more actually like samurai looks for especially for the head of the gundam when yeah. you see it with the uh the mouth guard uh the kind of like i don't know like visored cap you've got the uh like the clan symbol like 3d thing that's on it and the top part uh that's actually like the main one of the main cameras for the uh for the uh for the robot looks like the like basically a metal top knot uh, that they uh, the the old samurai used to wear, mm -hmm. and when they really fleshed out like the art design for these three, which by the way the uh, the lead designer of uh, Kunio Kakara, like he enjoyed designing it because it gave him a chance to do something different. But he really enjoyed making all of the villain or enemy mobile suits because mm -hmm. basically the only person who had gave him input on it was just Tomino, the director. They weren't making any toys from him, so therefore the toy company didn't care, studio didn't care. He's like, the only thing I was told is he wanted to have like a Cyclops-like look with one big glowing eye on it. So he's like, literally the Zaku, which is the name of the um, the enemy mobile suit we first see, had two drafts and it was done. <laughs> which, oh, nice. If you've ever like originally created something, like that has to be incredibly quick. But anyway, um, onto that term mobile suit. So we're here, we're designing these, these giant robots because again, they're like, these things need to be more tank on tanks on legs than like big magic robots. So because they're gonna be different, they're like, we need to call them something different. They can't just be robots. These should be things that act like more or less, think of like armor that you wear, except it's just bigger and you're controlling it. So like an armor, a suit of armor this is instead a giant mobile suit and that's why you get mobile suit gundam hmm. and right. yeah yeah and most of the other robots in the series follow that same moniker that they're they're mobile suits was um, there ever a nokia suit no because that would be unstoppable so i was gonna say a that, nokia that, suit no yeah. mm -mm. the series would be one-sided i mean That'd be a war crime just to use. <laughs> I, I, I did want to mm -hmm. say this, though, before we got too far away from it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are a lot of countries that do have the red, white, and blue, Joe. It's not just mm -hmm. the USA. So I, I think I, that's I think... a lie. It, or, you know what? If they do have them, they definitely copied us. Uh, well, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, they definitely didn't. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm just going to say... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean that's that's a bold move cotton uh, very bold move. I mean, I mean look, at, like, look at france like they have been around way longer than the u.s and they've been red white I, and blue so i was gonna say there's there's plenty there's plenty <laughs> Written, in, uh, but oh uh, uh, yeah I, but I yeah mean, no there's, plenty there's, yeah. plenty of others yeah mm -hmm. but <laughs> that's yeah funny choice yeah, I, I i yeah didn't want to get too far away from that one. Oh yeah but speaking of war crimes that's something that this series is also kind of notoriously full of um 
because while we joined Amuro uh, at the uh, the first episode, he comes in at almost the end of the war that's been kind of built up. Um, this entire first series takes place in an event called the One Year War, where what had happened is that the group of colonies, which in this they call these colonies sides, because they divide Earth up into eight different sides of the planet, and then basically the group of colonies that fit on any particular side are just numbered sides one through eight. Um, and the, the side that's the colonies furthest from Earth has therefore the loosest connection with Earth. So they're like, well, you get to say uh, basically anything you want to, and we have to follow that direction. You get to make all of our laws and rules for us. We don't like that. So they started having uh, basically talks of rebellion. And eventually the Earth government does like lean a little bit and say, you know what, we'll give you a slightly autonomous government where you can make some of your own rules. But basically it's kind of a puppet, a puppet government set up by the Earth Federation. Um, they don't like that even more, so they basically dethrone that puppet government, rebel, and call themselves the uh, Principality of Xeon. And mm -hmm. even within that like whole story, there is an insane amount of backstory as to how Xeon got formed that we just don't have a ton of time to get into. So do they call it Xeon or Paz? Because I think Paz is kind of a you know <laughs> easy thing to say. Marketing guy jumping it is. out here. Yeah, way way easier. Uh, yeah. because that's how, I mean, that's how we do it now. Therefore, if this is in the future, they turn into an acronym too. Um, yeah. but Xeon basically, it's hard because when you look at them and you see definitely the way their, um, their mobile suits are designed, the way their uniforms are designed and the way, uh, one of their main higher ups, uh, in the, in the government is his name's Giran Zabi. You're like, these guys are definitely just, you know, allegory for the Nazis in World War II. And by and large, they are. That's kind of their 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 role through the series. Uh, in the original series, we're meant to see Zeon as, as the bad guys. But as time goes on and we get sequel seasons and everything else, you realize that Zeon in some ways are justified in what they did and not others. Because by the time we get to this part of the war where we meet Amuro, Xeon uh, has already won, declared independence, and while there was a treaty that says we will not use nuclear weapons in our war, Xeon's like, okay, no nuclear weapons, but you never said anything about emptying out a space colony and dropping that some bitch on the Earth. Because Ooh, that's what they did. <laughs> naughty, and naughty. Very naughty. So now that happens. Earth is like, well, this is horrible. We're going to now just completely launch and wipe Xeon out. Except, little do they know, Xeon developed the first mobile suits. Which you may think, well, who cares? Like, I don't get it. Because, like, you're going to have fast-moving, like, fighter planes in space. You're going to have these massively huge, like, warships in space. Why are these slow-moving, bulky robots going to be anything? Like, you would think common sense says they should get taken out first. However... Part of what makes this series, again, stand out is that grounding in realism in science fiction. Because what powers these mobile suits and what powers like the massive ships are these compact fusion reactors. And they have been emitting uh, basically a new form of radiation that they hadn't accounted for when they were designed. And they call mm -hmm. them Minovsky uh, particles, named after the guy who had made, had made it. And it turned out that type of radiation completely like 
fucks all sorts of communication in the area where it's being dispersed. So no like cell signal, no radio signal, no sonar, no anything. Uh, none of it works. So all those ships are cut off from each other. And then you've got these mobile suits that come out and suddenly they've got a strong enough reactor to power like weapons that are basically battleship worthy. So they can pack as much of a fight from one weapon as like a single like battleship gun. Not like obviously mm -hmm. if, if a battleship has like tons of guns, it can't do the output of all of it, but it's got yeah. like one main battleship gun. So it completely take a, it can, can take a fighter out like nothing. They're, they're not much to a, to a mobile suit and they are maneuverable enough where they can maneuver around the actual large, like big old battleships and get up close to them and end up wiping them out. So they are a revolutionary space weapon and they're seen as these great equalizers because Xeon, think of it almost like American civil war. Xeon is like Confederacy incised and the earth Federation is like union incised. So mm -hmm. you've got this much larger force versus this smaller, but kind of more well-trained force fighting each other. Mm -hmm. So that's the backdrop that we're given. And then now we have the story of Amuro Ray and his commanding officer and the head of this white base area now that's finally even the colony. Uh, he's actually only an ensign normally, but because all the higher ups got wiped out around it, even that ensign is forced to now being the commanding officer of that ship. So oh they find themselves uh, leaving um, the colony only to be pursued by a man named Shar Aznabal, who is the top ace of Xeon. He's known as the Red Comet because he paints his mobile suit like a bright red color and mm -hmm. he's outfitted it so it's three times faster than the other ones that are the same design. And oh. he's just this greatly feared feared person so they're pursued by him so he's and, like he's like the red baron of the gundams yeah right? exactly yeah. he's the red baron and then is, the oh go for it is he the one that i've seen with like the giant z across his chest or is that somebody else because that's that's like oh, the one gundam i've seen that's something else okay all right all right <laughs> yeah that's, enough. that's something else mm -hmm. connect dots here it's okay oh okay. no it's all good and because well that the whole like red mobile suit thing that becomes a trope because of this main series so that basically in almost every iteration of the series, there's going to be some guy who wears a mask and flies a red mobile suit because they're trying to more or less recreate the magic that was Shah Aznable. Um, when you look at the polling of like popular characters from the series, Shah Aznable is the most popular character in this 40-year genre, and he's considered the villain <laughs> for quite basically almost his entire time he's on screen. Is he um, just that charismatic or what? Kind of, yeah, because well, even his backstory is great because it turns out the reason he joined Xeon was because his father was actually the head of the Xeon independence movement because he believed that as humans went into space, we begin to evolve to deal with the separation amongst each other and we become a new enlightened being called a new type, um, of basically a new type of human. And that movement gained speed and the Zabi family, who I'd mentioned one member of before, more or less hijacked that and used that as a political gain uh, and their already numerous wealth to basically create the Zeon, uh, the Principality of Zeon. And they just used Shar's father, who they arranged to have killed, but made it look like it was done by the Earth government. Uh, 
they arranged for that, and then they basically use that to like basically give move uh, steam to their own movement. So Shar, knowing this, like demands demands satisfaction. So his idea is to take them out from within, but we don't know that until about halfway through the series uh, that this is what's happened to him. So if we go back to where we left off with um, the the first episode airing of this completely different um, different giant robot series happening. Um, Yashihiko, who I'd mentioned before, was actually in a board meeting at Toei, the people who uh, Sunrise subcontracted for. He's like, actually, guys, do you mind if we we pause for a second? My new show that my my company is developing originally is is premiering. Can we watch it? They're like, yeah, sure, whatever. We'll we'll put it on. They put it on, and Yoshihiko said it was silence for thirty minutes. No one in that room talked. And no one at the end of the episode had anything bad to say about it. There are oh. so many episodes where animators are working on it, and they said the animation and the story brought them to tears because of just how tragic some episodes were and how powerful the story was at the time. So you have an original story. You have a basically the adults who have seen it, and even the, like the executives think it's incredible. Uh, you have a director and writer who is very much very gifted in what he's doing and believes in this. And yet, believe it or not, completely underfunded program. Mm. If we look at like the budget of some things, like Space Battleship Yamato, which I talked about before, a majority of Sunrise's staff were actually slotted to work for them. So Gundam yeah. didn't even get like the best in staff. Uh, the amount of staff dedicated to um, Yamato on Sunrise's part was enough people that could have animated three original shows for, and they're all working on one show. That's how many people. Damn. Gundam was only allotted 79 colors to use for its series, uh, <laughs> and the art director begged for three more and got them. <laughs> Yamato, wow. so it's a grand total of 82 colors total for Gundam. Yamato had 82 shades of gray, literally. <laughs> Jesus. That was just 82 <laughs> shades of one color. So like this, like Gundam was operated on a skeleton crew with a budget of, I don't know, say a small public school <laughs> yeah. is, is what they're running off of. And the, the thing was incredible from what everyone who was involved with thought it was because you get this crew now crash landing on Earth. The character is not sure of himself through a chunk of the series until he gets old, until he, like, he develops. You have this amazing war machine, which is seen as this equalizer. And we also get this element of like humanity itself changing into something different because this was also Tomino's idea of the only thing that could truly end conflict among human beings is if we would evolve into a new type of person where we could communicate and understand each other better. But hmm. that whole ability turns out can be more or less like, I don't want to say more or less, but basically can be used for more than just understanding people, but the pilots begin to predict each other's movements and it becomes something that can be exploited on the battlefield eventually. Um, yeah, like yeah. I think for for me trying to understand this this struggle because mm -hmm. you've you've obviously mentioned civil war and 
and the idea of colonization and all that. But mm -hmm. is that primarily what drives most of this series or does it begin to get, you know, into this uh, material conflict? Like we've talked about, like in our, ironically enough, in our episode with Josh Sawyer, mm -hmm. where we mentioned like what drives a good, you know, RPG setting or something, you know, it's usually yeah. material conflict. So like, mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a nuance to that, but I mean, oh, is yeah. that, is is that really the, the 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 core focus, or is there any other gravitas here that that's getting pulled in? There's definitely material conflict because, like, basically, Earth itself is being seen as a place of the bourgeoisie. That if you're rich enough, you can be on the Earth. But if you're mm -hmm. like, which is something else that's explored in in sequel series, of like why they colonized in the first place, and it's a combination of you're poor, we don't have room for you, get the hell off the planet, and they kind of like just stuff people in the space colonies. Um, mm -hmm. And then colonies are used as a way to be, as like more or less a localized way to mine like meteors and other planets that are relatively close to Earth. So it's more or less like forcing them into labor in space. But like any movement, it's not even that easy because it turns out some people would just rather be in space than on Earth. So when it comes yeah. to this, like there are so many like levels to Gundam where again, like there's not enough time in an episode or even honestly three to cover all of it. <laughs> well, because it's, it's me, you... getting... mm -hmm. I, oh. I was getting some vibes of like it's less like come on, baby, let's go to Mars. And, <laughs> and and it's it's more like don't want to close my eyes. You know, I don't want to fall asleep. Yeah, mission, mm -hmm. baby, and don't want to miss a thing. Exactly, Let's go drill it is some shit in space. Far more Armageddon than um <laughs> than I was gonna say Eraser, but that's not right. Total Recall. Total Recall. Total Recall. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Eraser is something different, but yeah. But um, coming back to where we're here is we've got this premiering in I believe early 1979. So this is in April. It's given a 5:30 time slot. The show is itself is intended for teenagers and adults. The only people watching at 5.30 are kids in Japan. Mm. So most of the kids are seeing the show and they're like, why isn't the fist flying off the robots and punching through the other robots? Yeah. I, or like it's, it's to the point where like when they're young enough, like they're not following this ongoing story because it needs to be episodic for them. So the show's ratings are abysmal. It's mark. It's it's uh, it's episode shares for viewings. First episode were three percent total. Uh, like comparatively, Yamato's twenty twenty three percent somewhere in there for its first episode. Mm -hmm. So incredibly small. Gundam actually for its first half of the season uh, peaks at five point seven percent viewership, and then just plummets further and further and further. And all the while this is happening. You can kind of see why, because uh, the uh, the Gundam has made its way to Earth with its uh, with its fellow um, soldiers. Uh, teammates are being killed off uh, on the show, mm -hmm. and it's not because it's like you know they're voted off the island or they're unpopular. That's how it was written. Uh, part of the tagline at the end of each episode is uh, with a preview the next episode. They leave off by saying who will survive because you don't know it's war. You don't know who's going to make it from day to day when you're seeing combat. So you're seeing people get killed off. At one point, Amuro gets so fed up, he just takes the Gundam and deserts. Uh, and before he, he eventually does come back. But times are not great for them as they're going from like spot to spot there on Earth. 
and because of like the kind of like the dreary story that's going on, the poor um, ratings, and on top of that, when the ratings aren't doing well, the kids aren't turning in, no one's buying the toys either. So the sponsors yeah. are fed up. So basically, when the when when we hit the fall in October, and ratings haven't gone any better, toy sales haven't gone any better. The sponsor Clover officially pulls the plug, says, "Hey, mm. we're not like those toys are sitting on shelves. This is like Green Lantern the movie because we can predict the future, and that's a mistake. Um, <laughs> and we're we're done here. Uh, so the decisions made at Sunrise. We're gonna go from originally." It was slotted to be 51 episodes down to 43, and the show's going to be done in January. So Gundam got canceled, um, basically before the show was even half done. Requiem Captain Pache. Indeed. Rest in peace, dear Gundam. Your days now, are numbered. Th this is, uh, to me, this, feel this feels indicative, mm -hmm. obviously, of the time period, but also of, of how connected the world was, because yeah. you know, uh, Iron Man premiered in 63, I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure. And obviously, there's a lot of parallels between these properties. Just in you know, the idea of wearing a, a mobile suit uh, that's powered <laughs> mm -hmm. by a, a mini reactor. So, yep, you know, I I definitely think that mm -hmm. some of the struggles of things that you know the the predecessors of our modern you know mm -hmm. modern properties, uh, I, I I definitely think they fare better. If, yeah, if they time traveled, you know, I do too. And speaking of faring better. When Gundam hit episode 29, suddenly they saw a pretty significant ratings jump. When it was going down for like 1%, and suddenly like we're we're in the sevens, we're in the eights, like we're going higher and higher from episode 29. And this is a part where naturally in the story, Amuro is becoming more sure of himself. He is seeing again this more new type development where he is basically what you may equate to being almost like a space Jedi. Um Ooh. Or I guess, I guess, yeah, more or less like an Earthborn Jedi sort of thing. Um, he's developing these powers. Shar's character is really becoming more interesting to everyone too because we're learning, we're learning more of his backstory and why he's doing what he's doing. Uh, and uh, you know who's interested in that? Teenagers. They love that story. This is who the show was written for in the first place, and they're finally starting to tune in, and they love it. And the reason you know, why they turned in? Oh, go for it. I was going to say boobs on the suits finally. Nah, no boobs on the suits. Oh, okay. Sorry. Although All there right. is nudity, but that's mostly just because Japan just doesn't care about that. <laughs> nudity is animated into it because hey, it's, they just, I guess, more open to it. They, they just don't care as much. Maybe it's that they, mm -hmm. it's not that they don't care. It's maybe mm -hmm. that we care too much. That could in be. In our right. audiences. I think that's the issue. Yeah. Yeah. The Western society, we are far more prudent. Yeah. Release yeah. that nipple. <laughs> but yeah so teenagers are watching more and it's because of actually an anime magazine that was published and the one of the lead editors loved gundam and he thought it was amazing so he finally gets around to printing a story about it and uh kids like teenagers read about it they they hear about it, like oh that's what the show is about we'll start like watching it so they start watching it ratings go up a little bit or they they go up and then the editor found out the show got canceled and he was like furious. He's like, this is insane. I can't believe this show is so good. And on top of it again, like the, like the executives thought it was good. The creative team thought it was good. And the, the show gets canceled somehow. So he writes the editorial about how this gets canceled. And after it gets canceled, you've got teenagers forming fan clubs at universities and in high schools 
They are writing into Sunrise saying, I can't believe you canceled this show. They are forming like little, like basically like uh, rallies to bring Gundam back because nothing was like this before and no one was brave enough to tell this story before Gundam did. And so it doesn't save Gundam. Gundam is still canceled. That's not, that's, that's not going away. Hmm. Um, but what does happen is as the story eventually does come to its conclusion in January um, and we see um, basically the finale of how the war ends. Amuro has grown significantly. A core group of the people from the white base have survived the war. Shar has exacted a good deal of his revenge upon those who have wronged him. And the show comes to its close. After that, we've still got the Clover toy sitting on the shelf. Um, but oddly enough, they decide to start producing records of the show's soundtrack. <laughs> and the record company that made it, like we put those things out there, and the first record did okay. Yeah. Uh, and we didn't know why, because we thought the movie did great. We thought the music was beautiful, too. And the, and the, uh, the composer for the show is like that the first season, which that record was of, Everything was there musically that people should have liked, and I don't get it. But when you look at the uh, the cover for the album, it was like so childish and kitty that like no one's gonna buy this damn thing. <laughs> it's like same the, same problem the series has been having. Having I was gonna say probably reminiscent of like all of the early Nintendo box art that has nothing to do yeah. with the game itself. Yeah, exactly. Childish and lame, and so they decide to release season two. Um, the the music from season two, and they have this beautiful cover of Amuro in basically his normal suit, which is a spacesuit, And it's just him, no Gundam, helmet off, just walking through a battlefield, gorgeous art, could not keep records in stores. The record company was like, we make, they're like, we produce like, like we're like, we're saying, he's like, we're not saying this to boast, but we produce some of the best Japanese idols and pop music in Japan. None of that was selling compared to Gundam. And that second, that second album, we couldn't make enough of those things. Like the teenagers wow. and the adults were just scooping the things up. And then again, after the show is done and canceled, uh, actually, um, again, the teenagers and college students, they pitch Katsumi uh, Kawaguchi, who is known as the Majin Kawaguchi in, in Gunpla circles these days, uh, say like, hey, the toy license for Gundam is wide open since Clover ditched it. Yeah. You at Bandai should pick it up and do something oh, with it. And he my. gets petitioned over and over and over again. And he's like, well, these things do look pretty cool. He's looking at the different suit designs. Say like, these are pretty cool. He's like, I don't know why like these wouldn't sell. So they turned them into plastic model kits, which of course, model kits typically aren't thought of for like younger children. These are for teenagers or or, or to adults. And those fly off the shelves. I think what to date, um, all time, over four hundred and fifty million models have been sold just of Gundam stuff alone by Bandai. So it is an insanely profitable, um, like toy series, or not toy series, model, model series now. Yeah. And yeah. the show gets end up being put back into syndication. Ratings do so well. Toy like uh, model kit sales are doing well. Sunrise greenlits Tomino to say, "All right, you can turn Gundam into a, a movie." And Tomino's like, "How about three movies?" They're like, "No, you don't get three movies. You get one movie." So here's what Tomino does. He's like, we're going to go ahead and take like the first third of the anime series minus episode 15, because honestly, episode 15 is really weird. 
and this is Tomino saying this, not me, because I've never seen episode 15. It was oh. ne it never made its way to America. It has not made its way onto the Blu-ray and DVD copies. So it's just non-existent anymore. Tomino's like, nope, that one gets locked away in a vault and it's gone. <laughs> um, so he puts a third of the series in, thinking like, here's what's going to happen. It's going to leave it on a cliffhanger. People are going to love it. And we're going to get our second, at least our second movie. Yeah. Opening weekend, it does over a billion yen in sales alone Ooh. on the first weekend. On opening day, Sunrise is like, make your other two fucking movies. Just do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Joe, mm -hmm. Joe, now I have an important question for you because I, mm -hmm. you know that I, I have done the least amount of preparation for an episode of this program for this specific one <laughs> that I have ever done. So mm -hmm. I have no no recollection of this. But did you adjust for inflation on that one billion in yen? Oh my god, I should have. I don't know. I don't know how I missed that. I'm embarrassed that I did because <laughs> like a billion yen, it's a lot of money. <laughs> it is. It's not like a billion dollars, but it's still a lot for an opening weekend. Yeah. Um, damn it, I, I'm so mad at myself because this is what we do. We adjust for inflation. Yeah, devotees um, of this program will. We'll remember that uh, one of our little cute jokes in the beginning was we would adjust everything <laughs> for inflation, mm -hmm. and uh, we haven't really done that. And um, no, jeez, I, I, I would say what? Like, let's we'll bring it back. Yeah, like forty-five oh, episodes of this, and we haven't even brought it back. I mean, what, what? I think have we done it once since Chelsea came on? I uh, I think once. I maybe think once. Once, once maybe since once. Chelsea's been on. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, um, this has been like definitely a passion episode for me because this is one where like i know that it's an obscure i don't want to say it's an obscure property it's a huge property in japan it's it's massive it's it's cultural like you they are now planning to build their third life-size like statue of a gundam mobile suit they oh, had yeah. the original one that was there for a while uh, actually this is it's actually it'll be its fourth the original was there for a while it eventually gets destroyed by uh by a tsunami um now they have a transforming unicorn gundam one which i know unicorn gundam sounds ridiculous but that is such a beautiful series the the animation the story the music everything about that series is phenomenal and like this thing is like a full-on light show they do every night at nine o'clock uh where, where it is and when i went to japan i went there for a week with my brother not yeah. kidding you every single night we went and watched it because it was it was just it, it meant a lot to us as fans of the series. Um, well, they now you, have oh yeah. When you say unicorn, mm -hmm. you have to preface it with: Are we talking about like rarity, one of a kind unicorn, or are mm -hmm. we talking Lisa Frank unicorn? And and I think most people just go mm -hmm. okay. straight to Lisa Frank. <laughs> yeah, they go straight to Lisa <laughs> Frank. <laughs> Believe it or not, it's somewhere in between because it is for the in that particular series. It is a one of a kind, one of a kind. There eventually, it's found out there are two other ones like it that are similar to a built, but compared to everything else that it's fighting, it's one of a kind. It's insanely powerful, and it starts out like in a base form with a big spike or horn on its head, but then when it transforms, like the horn opens up to the more traditional like Gundam V look, yeah. and it has more of the traditional Gundam look when it opens up, and it's like it exposes uh, part of its own frame underneath the armor. Which is part of like the design why, and the frame will actually glow in the presence of like that uh, when people dis display new type abilities, the frame actually glows different colors and does different things depending on what the pilot is capable of doing. So I mean, it's got some bright colors, 
it's one of a kind and super strong. So, you know, halfway between rare and Lisa Frank is where you could put it. <laughs> um, but now they even have a giant walking Gundam in Japan that's there. Um, yeah, so, I saw that. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But looking at the series and why I love it is again because it just it, it feels real. It makes it feel like like at one point in time in our history that this could happen. And that is also a part of what Tomino said he wanted at the beginning of this when it came to the characters is that these characters need to believe that the end of the war is happening, that there is hope, even if in fact there are neither. And that's where a part of the show just I, I love because you have the optimism of the main characters who are again always, like I said in, in the side stitch, they're always young. I think the oldest Gundam pilot in any series is like, I think 18 years old, and that's in G Gundam. Yeah. But G Gundam's its own weird, fun, fun, weird offshoot. Um, so it's always the youth, what's going on. You always have this element of humanity needs to evolve to something different and better than itself in order to end conflict. But at the same time, whenever humanity will try doing that, everyone else who refuses to evolve or change to a new mindset will always take that new thing and exploit it into yeah. something that will help them for their own means. And another thing this, this, this series does so beautifully is as soon as you think there's a concrete, like this is a villain in a story, you yeah. will find out just like in real life, there are members of the side that you aligned with who are yeah. just as corrupt, just as twisted, and just as awful as the people on the other side of the war. And because those things keep happening in every series, I don't know. It's it's a sense of stability in that way that I know these things are going to happen, but the way it's told each time is different. And and it just gets me every time. And again, that every series is tragedy, it's sorrow, and it's so, and it's a way to overcome those things. Well, well, correct me if I'm wrong. This is just me me observing mm -hmm. here and, and and taking in the information. Yes. But what kind of hits me here is that it's it's taking some of the best aspects of depictions of uh, civil war as entertainment, you know, from mm -hmm. from some of the movies we've gotten in the past, you know, 30, 40 years. Uh, yep. We also get the same, you know, sense of pride, no matter where you're from, when it comes to mm -hmm. telling a revolution story, you know, you, yep. you blend that in there. And mm -hmm then you balance that out with the intrigue of a game of thrones type of political intrigue and so absolutely yeah like all three mm -hmm. of those things in one like holy yep. crap like i'm surprised i've never watched more of it mm -hmm. <laughs> knowing that yep. uh, yeah so yeah yeah pretty cool now one thing that i would say is if there's anyone looking to get into gundam uh there are so many series to pick from so many and what's kind of nice is the series are starting to finally make their way into mainstream, like mainstream uh, US, like streaming services. So like Netflix has those three Gundam movies that we just talked about where Tomino adapted the main original series into those three. They are not dubbed. So if you're hoping for just straight English that you have to do subtitles for those. Um, they are runtime is like two and a half hours each. So they are pretty lengthy. Um, they have those, they have Gundam Unicorn, and they also have Hathaway's Flash, uh, which is something takes further on down the line. Um, if you want to get into Gundam and you do not want to start all the way at the beginning, 
a kind of fun place to start is Mobile Suit Gundam, the 8th MS team. It's available on Hulu, so if you have a Hulu subscription, you can watch it there. And the way it feels, as a heads up for how well it works, is someone on YouTube took the opening theme animation for that show and just put Fortunate Son on it, and it works <laughs> perfectly for the series. It's, it's, big, it's big robots in the jungle duking it out with a nice easy to go to story they leave all of the new type stuff out of it every once in a while they'll do a series it's like you know what the new type space magic is a bit much we're gonna we're gonna pocket that for now and just focus on pure like war drama and that's what eighth ms team does and in my opinion does it the best out of almost any series out there so it's something that takes place in the main storyline of Mobile Suit Gundam. It actually takes place during the same war as the original series. So they'll mention events that are hap that happened in the original 1979. However, yeah. you don't need really anything from the, the original series to enjoy the 8th MS team. The animation okay. is beautiful. The characters are fantastic. And in my place, if you want to start, like this is a quick go-to because it's also, I think... 13 episodes long, so it's not a very long series. Um, it also hmm. popped up in the Tomino break of the 90s after Victory Gundam, which we talked about a little bit in the side stitch when he was like, nope, fuck you guys and your sponsorships. <laughs> I'm taking a break. Um, 8th MS team pops up. So if you want to start somewhere and don't know where to start, watch Gundam the 8th MS team. If you can't get into that, you're probably not going to be able to do really well with Gundam. Otherwise, um, I do the same recommendation from last time. If you want to do an alternate series timeline where basically they're still Gundams, but they have nothing to do with the basically Amuro Ray continuity. It's just the same themes, the same story, but presented in a different looking package. Um, Gundam 00, I will always, always recommend because I love Gundam 00. It's not a perfect series, but it's basically Gundam Wing updated and done and executed much better. It reminds me of uh, when people recommend whiskey to each other. You know, <laughs> it's it's like there's there's never a perfect whiskey for anybody, and so uh, whiskey's still pretty good at the end of the day. Yeah, so, at the end of the day, you're still gonna like it. Hopefully, yeah. I'm not gonna say you're gonna like them. <laughs> it's not not for everyone, but again, um, gotta say this was probably the most fun for me to plan out of any episode we've done so far. Where like legitimately. We could have zero people listen to this. Even if Geofire is like, you guys took too long, I'm done. <laughs> and no one listens to this. I still loved writing and planning this episode. So if you are listening, thank you so much for sticking around this long. This was a lot of fun for me. And I hope you uh, I hope you took something away. And uh, go out and watch some Gundam. I, I mean, I'm not an expert by any means now. But mm -hmm. at least if I hear these words, I could jump in a conversation and go, I recognize that word. Mm-hmm. And another and fun thing you can always do, uh, if someone jumps, is talking, like, you walk into some, like, weird little Gundam tribe, and uh, they're talking and they're laughing back and forth, you just step in, put your glasses down a little bit, and you say, hey, came here to laugh at you, and then walk away, they'll get it. They won't be <laughs> mad at you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> For Geofire, if you held on this long, I mean, good on you. We appreciate you doing that. And 
I hope you had some fun learning about Gundam. I, I know I I definitely did, and I, I had some pretty good takeaways from this episode, Joe. So my hat that I always wear during recordings is off to you, and I uh, really do appreciate you digging through Gundam for us. Absolutely, and I'll be more than happy to do it again, because again, this series has so many entries, so if you need some help with uh, Zeta Gundam, which was the very successful sequel series to it, or the really weird series Double Zeta, where Tomo's like, you know what? Maybe I'm too sad, and we need to make Gundam happy again. <laughs> we'll make Gundam happy. And it led to a really weird 25 episodes. I'll be more than happy to cover anything in those series or anything beyond. You, uh, you just let us know in the comments section, and I'll keep going. But speaking of the comments section, uh, we like to give out, I guess... No, that's a bad segue. Forget the comment section. We're going to give some shout-outs now because yes. uh, we've had some great people help us along the way, and we've got some really great people coming up. Which so oh, we, we yeah. have to say it. Shout-outs from the Twitterverse. We bring that is back. your thing, and <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to stomp on that. You do a great job at it. <laughs> so when you say we, I'm letting you lift that one. Oh, fine. Well, hey, if you want to <laughs> try it, try it now. Okay, here from the first shout out from the Twitterverse comes from Play Comics. Uh, Play Comics is a great, great podcast where they are going to compare uh, video games to their comic book source material and see how accurate they are when you translate from page to interactive playtime. You can find them at Play Comics. And if you want that spelled out for you, it is at play comics C S S T. Uh, so yeah, give those guys listen sometime because they have a great podcast. Yeah, they're friends of the podcast. And speaking of friends of the podcast, we want to give a shout out to the Intergalactic Boombox, who is produced by our friend Kylie Bear that we had on the past week, who ironically enough also has appeared in, in the Gundam series, hasn't he? He has. Sure he he's a, yeah. He's appeared. Uh, he's in two different series. He's both in Iron Blooded Orphans, uh, and uh, Gundam Unicorn. Ooh. Well, you know what? He's taking the same talents you know him for from the Gundam series, but he also translates it into what feels like a a short radio program, uh, mm -hmm. where he mixes in. I mean, anywhere from ten to fifteen voices, and oh, yeah. it is incredible mm -hmm. <laughs> just and what he's I able to do. I love the way he opens it because he picks a random character and picks a random song and sings a song as a character. And it's yeah. hilarious. I think he, I think recently he did um, Hank Hill singing Nirvana. Yes, <laughs> he did. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, it actually, uh, it took me a moment to uh, understand what was going on. But I... Yeah, like... <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're, you're questioning at first, but then then it clicks. Like, oh, this is this is brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. It, yeah. Totally takes you back. But oh, I mean, he's gosh. doing some he's doing some mm -hmm. awesome stuff with the intergalactic boombox. You can find it at Boombox Pod on Twitter, um, and we'll also, of course, link this in the show notes. That's why we oh, love show notes. It's good um, show notes. Um, yeah. yeah. Other shout out is a future guest coming up, and her name is Stephanie Phillips. She is a writer for DC Comics. She is the main writer for the current Harley Quinn series. In the past, she has written for Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. 
and has done a lot of like independent work and has some really cool uh, independent projects coming up that'd be really fun to listen to. So listen to their comic books, Joe. You don't listen to them unless maybe you've got a cool person who reads them to you. You should go out and buy some comic books. I, I was gonna say it, it, it's it's not. We've got some pretty good technology, dude. I mean, we if do. you're, mm-hmm. I mean, if if uh, if you're blind, I know there are uh, options for folks that do that. So hey, this is true. Hey, you, you can yeah, just say it's to there. So if you're gonna listen to anyone's comics or read them. Uh, go pick up Harley Quinn because uh, a friend of our podcast, again, writer Stephanie Phillips, is currently writing that series. And from what we've read and heard, Harley is going off in some pretty cool directions and is definitely, definitely done with Mr. J. Yeah, and I, I can't wait for that episode to premiere because Stephanie is, is a 360-degree mm-hmm. badass, so we're absolutely looking forward to that episode. And speaking of which, another future guest of ours is the extremely talented Ben Heck. You might remember Ben Heck if you've ever watched Ben Heck Hacks or The Ben Heck Show. Uh, You can actually find both of them on YouTube, which we'll also, Mm -hmm. once again, link in the show notes. But what Ben is known for is basically taking video game console technology and either miniaturizing it or making them portable. Or in the Mm -hmm. case of my brother's Virtual Boy, he actually turned it into the Virtual Man, which is a VR (laughs) headset Mm -hmm. for the Virtual Boy. Uh, it's a rare rite of passage that very few virtual boys have known, because <laughs> to my knowledge, only Ben Heck can make a virtual boy a virtual man. Oh yeah, yeah. Ben Ben Heck is he's tremendously talented uh, from this standpoint, and we talked a little bit about uh, some of the history behind the, the projects he's had. Um, but once again, we want to do a shout out for Ben because he's got mm-hmm. so much cool stuff out there. He's been doing this since I want to say 2008 is when that YouTube yep. channel was born. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you can find uh, Ben Heck on Twitter at Ben Heck, and uh, he's also got BenHeck.com as well, which lists all of his projects as well as stuff you can buy. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of cool video game tech he's making that you can mm-hmm. purchase. Uh, he actually talks to us specifically about the one-handed PS4 controller, uh, yep. which you know, folks with disabilities, if you only have like one arm, for example, you can mm-hmm. play PlayStation with with this controller. It's really cool. Pretty cool. Um, just uh, yeah. just don't ask him to portableize your Nintendo 64. He'll oh, be God. very upset with you. <laughs> and if you watch his three-part episode of him actually trying to make it a 64 portable, you'll understand why he's going to be so mad at you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, we're, we're absolutely excited, though, because, once again, those, mm-hmm. those episodes with Stephanie and Ben coming up, uh, I mean, they were so much fun to produce and be a part of, so we can't wait to share those with you. But other than that, we like to keep the next episode a little bit of a uh, mystery. So stay tuned. Yeah, we'll be we'll be we'll be dropping uh, some hints on that in the next few days. But otherwise, folks, like we always say, keep on dissecting.